Well, again, true faith works. You guys might get tired of hearing me say that, but that is the inescapable theme of the letter of James. Now, one of the works of New Testament faith is patience. That is, in fact, a fruit of the Spirit. I looked up the word patience in Merriam-Webster, and they defined it this way, the capacity or habit of being patient. I thought, oh, great. So I looked up patient, and that actually yielded something a little bit better. They defined the word patient as bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint. Manifesting forbearance under provocation or strain, not hasty or impetuous. I think those are a good start. Bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint. Some of us can stay calm under pressure or difficulty. It may be rare to endure pain or trials without complaint. Manifesting forbearance under provocation or strain. This is the quality of patience that you have with someone else. Someone else is provoking you, goading you on, but you remain calm. You continue on without complaint. You bear with their provocations against you. Also, not being hasty or impetuous. Those who are patient tend not to be hasty. They tend not to rush in. They tend to be willing to wait to hold back those impulses that we tend to have in response to things that are happening. Now, I say it's a good start, those definitions, those aspects of the definition for the term patient, because the quality of New Testament patience is a bit more than that. It's more than simply bearing pains or trials calmly without complaint. It's more than bearing up well under provocation. It's more than not being hasty or impetuous. It is that, but it's not le- it, is not, it is more than that. New Testament patience is often described in terms of its perspective on the outcome. We can be patient in trial because we know that, one, God is at work in our trials, that he is at work in general in the world for our good. We can be patient with one another because we know of the Lord's patience with us. We can be patient in all of our distresses because we know that in the end, Jesus wins and so will we. New Testament faith is hopefully patient. It is expectantly patient, in other words. Now, you can be patient waiting at the doctor's office for a root canal, right? Or you can be patient at an airport waiting for a loved one to disembark after a long time away. Those are two different kinds of patience. If I could offer a clear definition, then, using part of the classic um, Merriam-Webster definition or refining it biblically, I would say this. Patience is the ability to remain at ease in the midst of turmoil in view of the promises of God. The ability to remain at ease in the midst of turmoil in view of the promises of God. You can insert the reward of God, but it's looking forward to what God has in store for us. I believe that this is the kind of patience that James is referring to. It's not just the raw act of being patient in the midst of difficulty or trial, bearing up under the pressure of the potential provocation of that trial. It is bearing up under trial as you look forward to the future hope that you have, as you look forward to the promised reward. It is a joyful expectation that changes your attitude today as you think about what's in ahead of you tomorrow. This is the joy of a mother in labor. I've heard that this is some of the most significant pain that a woman can endure. It's some of the most significant pain, but they are able to endure it. They make preparations for it in whatever ways they can. Their body even changes and alters itself. God has designed their body, the, the body of women to be able to do that in order to make preparations for this child. And, and then you go through labor and there's all this pain and anguish that you experience, but you're able to experience that pain and anguish. At least I've been told, uh, since I've never personally experienced it, you're able to, to endure the pain and anguish because you know, there's going to be a reward afterward. 
you know there's something good is going to come from it. This is a joy of an athlete who trains for a big competition. They deny themselves certain foods. They eat only certain other foods. They buffet their bodies in order to bring their bodies into the tip-top shape, peak performance, to be able to go through whatever the competition is in order to be able to gain the reward, whatever the reward is. And as much as we complain about some things, any one of us is able to endure some of the most uncomfortable, painful moments in our lives if there is a reward at the end of it. Rewards at the end of difficulty often serve as some of the best kinds of motivation. Biblically, the faithful have always been not simply enduring difficulty with patience, but enduring with patience by looking forward to the reward. The writer of Hebrews says that the faithful in chapter 11, those who died in faith, died in faith in a sense that they were looking forward to the promised reward. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. It says that these desired a better country, that is a heavenly one, one that God had prepared for them. And because they were looking forward to this reward, because they desired that better country that God had prepared and promised for them, the text says in Hebrews chapter 11 that they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sheep and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The text says those of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves in the earth. And all these commended through their faith did not receive what was promised. But they still died in faith. They did not receive the promise in their time but they look forward to it and the fact that they look forward to it helped them to endure the significant trials and difficulties that they encountered in life and in the long line of faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11 the culmination of that hall of faith as it is so referred is in chapter 12 in the first few verses where it says looking unto Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, endured the hostility of sinners against himself, and is now sitting down at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Even Jesus, looking forward to the joy that was set before him, endured suffering, endured difficulty. This is the nature of true faith. It's not an easy faith. It's not a faith where we're promised a bed of roses. It's not a faith where we're promised a life of ease. It's a faith where we're promised a reward for faithful service, a reward that is future. Just as this cloud of witnesses for whom scripture attests, just as the author and perfecter of our faith had to travel through the fire, through the difficulty, through death, in order to receive the reward, so shall we. Here at the end of the letter of James, we're really returning full circle to where James began in chapter 1. He started off by encouraging the believers to whom he was writing to know that God is sovereign over their trials, the difficulties that they encounter in life. He's at work in their trials. He's working out good things through their trials. He's strengthening their faith through their trials. That's how he began the letter. Because we tend to think of our trials as something to fear, something from which we should run. But James encourages believers that through trials, through the difficulty that we experience, which is common to all of us as believers, it's common to the faithful. 
that God is at work in the midst of those things to bring about our good. And what God expects from us is not to get out of the trial as soon as possible, but for us to be faithful. And that faithfulness, as we come to chapter 5, involves us being patient in the midst of our trials. And this is James's, one of James's concluding exhortations as we return to the letter of James and we're focusing in on chapter 5 and coming in coming to an end in this letter, in particular chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, James reminds them that even in the midst of opposition, in the midst of trial, in the midst of great difficulty, he reminds, he encourages the believers to be patient because the Lord's return is coming and with his return will be his reward. Well, let's read James chapter 5. I'll read the whole chapter. And then we'll focus in particularly on verses 1 through 11 this morning. James chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and your corrosion will be, its corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last day. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you will not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. Let us pray. Again, Father, we thank you for another opportunity that we have to come before your word. Your word, which is truth, which Jesus prayed for us that you would sanctify us by your truth. And so I pray that you would indeed do that this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be, be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. James gives us, in verses 1 through 11, two main reasons why we ought to be patient. He says, be patient, in verses 1 through 7, knowing that the Lord is coming in judgment of the unfaithful. And be patient, in verses 8 through 11, knowing that the Lord is coming to bless the faithful. Be patient, knowing that the Lord is coming to judge the unfaithful, verses 1 through 11. Be patient, knowing that the Lord is coming to bless the faithful. 
I'm sorry, 1 through 7, and then uh, verses 8 through 11 for the second part. Well, let's look at the main point. First point, verses 1 through 7, be patient, knowing that the Lord is coming to judge the unfaithful. Again, that's verses 1 through 11. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Well, this is a picture of the unfaithful, particularly in verses 1 through 6. James, much like the prophets of old, addresses the unfaithful, the unbelieving world in his letter to underscore the reality that God sees all. And just as with the prophets of old, the primary audience of James's pronouncement here is the faithful, those who believe. This warning, this woe, this judgment pronounced upon the unfaithful is situated in this section of the letter in such a way to encourage the hearts of those who are being poorly treated by the unfaithful. James identifies them as the rich. He says, come now, you rich. And again, James is coming full circle with his argument as he began first by encouraging the poor and abused believers by the fact that their suffering and their trials were not in vain again but that God is at work in our trials his words here are similar to encourage believers to remember that those who are oppressors will not have the last laugh they will not be victorious in the end they may have their day today they may do their oppressing today, but their day will not last. God will have a final say. Judgment will, that will come to them. In our day, we may not suffer oppression as the laborers in James' time. We may not feel like we're being oppressed in some way or another. Our faith, nevertheless, is not a vindictive faith. It is not a faith that longs for retribution today, for revenge today. Our faith is a faith that leaves room for the vengeance of God. We're reminded in Romans chapter 12, Paul said to leave room for the vengeance of God. As the Lord says, judgment is mine, I will repay. I've also said this before, but throughout the letter of James, the final judgment is repeated. It's a repeated theme. The judgment of God is coming. We get discouraged sometimes when we see sin in the world, when we see wars and rumors of wars, when we see the wicked seem to prosper in their wickedness. We grow discouraged when we see terrorism seeming to have its way in the world. And those who perpetrate terrorism seem to revel in and grow increasingly more bold in their acts. Sometimes it seems as if there's no way to stop them. And we may wonder, we may grow distressed over that. I mean, we may wonder... How Israel is supposed to react when a terrorist organization who attacked their country, their people, is effectively spread throughout a certain region, living among the other people, their neighboring nations. How can they contain that kind of terrorism? Yet we maintain and we believe that God is powerful. God is good. He's not going to allow the wickedness that seems to prevail today to continue and we're encouraged frequently not to lose heart remembering that the coming of the Lord is at hand miseries James says will come upon those who are wicked again back to our text he says come now you rich the ones who are oppressing the people of God, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, this is the promise of judgment for the wicked. The promise of judgment may come as a surprise for the wicked, but James is here letting them know that it shouldn't be a surprise. Last week I mentioned that those who have wealth tend to look at their wealth as a source of security. 
Those who are wealthy tend to look at their riches and the accumulation of more riches as that which will provide stability and safety for their lives. They don't worry or they think they don't have to worry. They don't have to be anxious about things that happen in life because they have more riches. They have a lot of zeros in their bank accounts. James says that's not going to last very long for you. In fact, he gives a picture of the future, what their future will hold in verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. While they may think that they are secure through their riches, James says not so fast. Your riches and the veneer of security that it gives you is going to come to an end. And this is even a part of their judgment being depicted here in these words. Their riches, their source of wealth will rot. Their garments will be eaten by moths. Their gold and silver will corrode. And the corrosion of their gold and silver will be evidence of the foolishness of their choices in life. He says that the very fact that their gold and silver will corrode will eat up their flesh like fire. In other words, it's going to add fuel to the fire of their suffering when the judgment comes. He says, you've laid up treasure for yourselves in the last days. How foolish that is. It's the last days. Why are you laying up treasure is the idea. The judgment of God is coming. But again, why are those miseries coming to the rich? As James is calling them out here in this text. Look at verse four and six, four through six. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Part of the way they made their riches was due to fraud. They cheated their laborers. Perhaps they told their laborers that they would pay them one thing and they paid them something else. Perhaps they simply did not pay their laborers what they were worth, the going market for that kind of work. Either way, they kept back what was due to their laborers. James says that this is fraudulent. And God is not one to overlook sin of any kind, especially oppression. He says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You may wonder why it's important to be just in your dealings with others, why it's important for owners, managers of business businesses to be just in their dealings with their workers. It's because God is not mocked. We said earlier in the letter of James that God is compassionate and he looks out for those who are the most vulnerable, those who are often taken advantage of, those who are oppressed. This is reminiscent this cry that you hear from the laborers is reminiscent of the response of God to the cry of Israel in Egypt. God said to Moses in Exodus chapter three, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've seen their oppression, which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you. He says to Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people out of Egypt. And if you remember, Israel was in Egypt for, for years, for hundreds of years by that time. So it's not like they went down into Egypt and then God said, oh, we got to get you out of Egypt right away. No, he didn't go to deliver them from Egypt until they were oppressed. And he heard their cries for help. This is just showing the character of God and his desire to help those who are oppressed, those who are vulnerable. And God is opposed to oppression And it doesn't really matter whether that oppression is an oppression upon his people or an oppression for any others. He even chides his people in Isaiah chapter 1 for being oppressors. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Then he says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. God is opposed to oppression of any kind. I'll make a quick comment here because I think it's appropriate as we think about oppression, as we think about issues pertaining to social justice, 
um, which is kind of a hot-button topic still in our society. We do know that it is true that God opposes oppression, but that does not mean that we as a church have a primary responsibility to seek out and to fight against oppression in a society. Now, don't misunderstand me. We ought to speak out when things are wrong, when something is wrong, when it's evil, when it's wicked, when it's sin, certainly we should speak out about it, but it's not our primary job to correct the ails of society, right? I think some churches have gone far off field because they've turned their focus from God's word and from the truth of God's word and from the mission of the church, which is to make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the truth of the gospel and to preserve the unity of the spirit, to build up one another. We've gone so far off field because we come, we get wrapped up into conversations about social justice and pursuing those things more than we pursue the one thing that's actually going to make a difference in the society, which is the gospel. Moving on back to the text. God is concerned about oppression and the fact that those business owners in James's day have been keeping back the wages of their workers. This oppression has caught notice as their cries have reached his ears. James is going to return to the subject of prayer in a few verses. And this verse is not about prayer, but rather it assumes prayer. And I think that's significant here. It assumes that those who are oppressed have a very clear response in the midst of their oppression. Their response is not complaint. Their response is not petition, a walkout, a call for boycotting certain business establishments. Their response is not a call to riot in the streets, to loot, to attack, to fight, to throw Molotov cocktails, to set up bombs, to shoot, to beat, to murder their oppressors. Their response is to pray, to cry out. He's going to say in a second that those who are oppressed don't even resist. And I think that they don't resist in this sense because they cannot. They don't really have the opportunity or the ability to put up any kind of legitimate resistance. But they can pray. They do what they can do. Now, the text is clear that their cries haven't just reached any ears. Their cries have reached, James says, the Lord of hosts. The term Lord of hosts is a reference to the hosts of heaven. In other words, this is the Lord who controls the armies of heaven, the one who has all power. He is the one who has heard about this oppression. He is the one who's going to deal with the oppressors. Now, the rich, they have cheated, they have oppressed the laborers. And while those laborers suffered and cried out to the Lord of hosts, the rich themselves in verse five lived in luxury and self-indulgence. They kept getting richer, ignoring the suffering of the laborers, and they were living their best life now. Luxury and self-indulgence, James says. Now, again, he's not condemning them because they were rich and they had riches. He's condemning them because of the way that they got their riches and because of what they did with their riches. Instead of helping others, seeking to bless others, they use their riches for their own luxury, their own self-indulgence. They indulge in their passions. We talked about passions a couple of weeks ago. Whatever passions, whatever desires they had, they indulged in, and they did it because they had the money to do it, even though this money was obtained in wicked ways. This was self-care at its finest. James says in the rest of verse 5 that their indulgence was akin to fattening themselves in the day of slaughter. They desired to live it up, and yet their desire to live it up and their self-indulgence is really just fueling fire, the fires of God's wrath towards them. While they cheated the laborers, they indulged in luxury, they also condemned the Lord's people. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Their actions, their cheating of wages, their living in luxury while others suffered is what essentially condemns others. They're guilty of murder by virtue of their action and inaction regarding those who they defrauded. 
Perhaps they condemned others by lying in court to take some advantage. One author described it this way. The murder here is most likely judicial, whereby wealthy landowners take smaller, poorer, indebted farmers to court, stripping them of their land and thus their source of income, and then hiring them back again to work their former property as sharecroppers. With dirt, poor wages, unpaid debts might lead their new landlords to throw them into debtor's prison where they could rot for the rest of their lives. In the Jewish world, to deprive a person of their support was the same as murdering them. End quote. Whether it was this kind of legal action that the wealthy landowners took or not, I think that James's point is that by their lives, the rich, by their defrauding actions, actions and inaction, failure to share their wealth with others, they were complicit in condemning and essentially murdering, taking the lives of these poor individuals. And in case it wasn't clear, James says it is the righteous person who is condemned in murder. The righteous, the faithful, the righteous are being oppressed. The righteous are being affected by the sin and the self-indulgence of the wicked. And James says he does not resist you. And I don't think this is a James's desire to, to teach or to encourage pacifism, that's not the point. I think that they don't resist them because they simply didn't have the opportunity to resist in any way. And again, to be clear, it is the abuse of wealth that is the issue here. James is not condemning them for simply being wealthy. We've talked about that a number of other times in the past. They're being condemned here for their abuse of riches of their oppression of others. I wonder, have you ever felt the sting of oppression? We don't really talk about oppression in the same sense as we may have talked about it, I don't know, a hundred plus years ago in our nation, thinking about the injustices of slavery and the oppression of slavery. But in our nation, even as we're touted as the land of opportunity, it still is an increasingly more these days, a gap that is ever widening between those who are rich and those who are poor. Throughout the world, the poor are neglected and at times abused and taken advantage of. Now, as I've said already, that it's not our primary job as a church to be involved in pursuing social justice. It's not our primary mission. Our primary mission is to love one another and to reach out with the gospel. But the question is, how are we to think about oppression as believers? When we are oppressed, when we are taken advantage of, when we are abused, how are we to think about that? If we were to put ourselves in the position of the poor that James is referring to here in this text, how, can we remain, how could we remain patient in the midst of that if that's what we're being encouraged to? How can we remain at ease in the midst of this kind of turmoil? That's what James says in verse 7. After he calls out the rich, he says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Now you'll have to take note that this is not just God going on record here and making a statement to condemn those who oppress, right? Like you see that a lot when something bad happens or when there's some great social ill or a social, um, uh, social sin that is committed. People will go on record to proclaim their outrage. They'll go on record to condemn the wickedness. This is more than that in the text of scripture. This is a promise of judgment in these verses. And it is a very real promise of judgment. And that promise of judgment is the basis upon which James is trying to encourage the believers to be patient. Again, in the text in verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. And whenever we see therefore, we understand that we have to look back to what was said before. All of what James said before about the judgment that is coming to those who are rich is the reason why he's encouraging them to be patient. Be patient knowing that judgment is coming, that the Lord will not allow those who oppress you to continue in their oppression. Judgment is coming. So you can be patient. Wait until the coming of the Lord. Wait until his return in judgment. 
For us, awaiting the coming of the Lord in judgment, the coming of the Lord to judge the wicked is just as the farmer who awaits, James says, awaits the precious fruit of the earth. The text says he awaits for it with patience. He waits for the early and late rains. He has no control over the coming of the rains. He has no no control over when or if they come. He does his duty. He tills the soil. He harvests and replants seeds. He works to keep pests away as much as possible. He works to do what he can do to nurture the soil. But he has to be patient for the rains. And James says, likewise, we must be patient for the rain to come. We must persist in doing our duty. We must be faithful to continue to till the soil, to continue to do the work that the Lord has left for us to do. We have to be faithful to do that as we are patiently waiting for the rain to come, the judgment of the Lord to come. But that is what is to motivate us in our patience. Be patient. Wait for the precious fruit of the judgment of God on the wicked. The Lord will make right everything wrong. He will straighten everything that is crooked in this world. Be patient, beloved. Moving on, James continues his address by turning his attention to the conduct of believers. Be patient, knowing that the Lord is coming to judge the unfaithful, but also be patient patiently live out your faith knowing that the Lord is coming to bless the faithful look at verses 8 through 11 he says you also be patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged behold the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord behold we consider those blessed who remain steadfast you have heard of the steadfastness of Job you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful I've said this, we've talked about the judgment of God that is to come before, but James frequently refers to the judgment throughout the letter. James chapter one, verse four, we are to show ourselves, we show ourselves judges with evil thoughts when we treat one another with partiality. In James chapter two, verses 12 through 14, we have a faith that works. Every one of us will stand before God in judgment as he evaluates our faith and we will be judged by the law of liberty. In James chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, our tongues will come into judgment. James chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says that God judges believers who make themselves friends with the world by openly opposing them. You have not because when you ask, you ask in order to spend on your pleasures. And in James chapter 4, verse 12, believers act as judges of the law when they speak evil against one another. There will be a judgment for the faithful. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become the ungodly? And the sinner, there will be a judgment for the faithful. I mean, how else is Jesus going to say, well done, good and faithful slave when we get to heaven, right? If he's not evaluating how we've done. Our hope is ultimately, as we already saw in James, that mercy will triumph over judgment. That our God will be merciful to us in Christ, that he will give greater grace. As we think about the judgment that is to come. Moreover, it is our hope, just as the faithful in Hebrews 11, that when we finally get to the end, we will receive the reward of the promise that we'll realize our inheritance in the kingdom. A large part of that reward is, as John says in 1 John chapter 3, we will be like him. That's a part of the promise reward. We're going to be made like Jesus. We'll share in his glory. Another part of that reward is, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, that we're going to be ushered into a kingdom, into a place where righteousness dwells. And I love that, that wording in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's a place in which righteousness dwells. Where we live and how we live in the world today now is not characterized by righteousness. It's characterized by unrighteousness. But there is coming a day when we will dwell on the earth, a new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness dwells. And that day is coming. 
I wonder how often you consider the coming of the Lord. It's one thing to consider that the coming of the Lord will mean judgment for the enemies of God and for your enemies. It's another thing to consider how the coming of the Lord is going to impact our lives. But scripture is forward-looking. Our faith is forward-looking. Our faith ought to involve hope in the future. It ought to involve a forward-looking expectation. And James is turning his attention to that in our text. Look back at the text again. Verse 8. He says, you also be patient. He's repeated patience multiple times in just a few short verses here. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts with this truth. Rest in this truth. The coming of the Lord is going to mean blessing. Paul says the blessing that we're going to have when the Lord returns is characterized by the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. That's in Ephesians chapter 2. But we need to be looking forward to that. We ought to be looking forward to that. More than that, he goes on. He says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The coming of the Lord ought to make a difference in our lives today. We ought to look forward to the coming of the Lord. We ought to look forward in hope. But that forward-looking perspective ought to also impact our conduct today. His coming should encourage us in the face of trials. His coming should also affect how we live our everyday lives, how we interact with one another. The text says, do not grumble against one another. Do not grumble. Do not complain. Do not grow bitter. This is reminiscent of his words earlier in verse 4 where he says, do not speak evil of one another. We've talked about our speech throughout the letter of James. We need to take care of how we treat one another, what we say to one another, how we respond in the midst of trials. We're not given the luxury of responding in anger to one another just because we had a bad day, in other words. Because the thing that should control our hearts and the way we think about life is the coming of the Lord and the fact that we're going to have to stand before him in judgment. We need to be patient with one another, James says. The Lord is faithful. He will faithfully come to judge those who are wicked, but he's also going to judge the believer. He's going to judge our faithfulness to him. He's going to take a look at how we live and act with one another. We ought to live as if we know that the judgment of the Lord is coming. James moves on in the text and he gives us a couple of examples. Verse 10, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Why does he mention the prophets? Well, he's talking to Jewish believers. They would have been familiar with the law and the prophets, just as many of us grew up hearing stories of Jesus and the apostles of Acts, of Paul, Peter, and John. Many of them would have grown up hearing stories of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Zechariah. They would have heard of those who, again, in Hebrews 11, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, and so on. James says in verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. This is a statement of fact. This is a value statement, one that separates the faithful from those who do not have faith in Christ. The word considers those blessed who never suffer. Right? The world considers those blessed who have, again, enough money in their accounts to stave off any form of suffering the world can throw at them. The world considers those blessed who have, always have a smile on their face and who never want for anything. And while that kind of theology has crept into the church in various forms over the years, it is a far cry from biblical Christianity. Our faith is a faith that knows suffering. It's a faith that understands suffering. Our commander-in-chief, our savior, was called a man of sorrows and one who is acquainted with grief. It knows trial. It knows pain, tears, and sorrows. But in spite of those things, our faith is a faith that patiently waits in the midst of those things. It patiently, hopefully, joyfully endures suffering because it looks forward to the reward of God. He says we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. When we see and hear of those who remain steadfast in the midst of trials, it encourages our faith. 
When we hear of the Adoniram Judsons and the Jim and Elizabeth Elliots, of the Martin Luthers, the Hudson Taylors, when we hear of those who endured sorrow, trial, pain, it encourages our faith. Because we think if they could do it, so could we. If God preserved them in the midst of it, he can preserve our faith. I'll never forget some dear friends of ours from a previous church who were the the, um, wife was pregnant at the same time that we were. And I think the due dates of their little one and our little one was about a week apart. And I remember this so vividly because she came to visit my wife maybe a day or so before she ended up going into the hospital. And um, she went into the hospital with some trouble um, and found out that their little one had died. And it obviously broke their heart. It broke our hearts. Um, It was a difficult thing for our entire church. And yet this dear couple, we had their, the funeral service for their little one. This dear couple stood there and as broken and as, as heartbroken as they were, they stood there and they remained steadfast in their faith. And they confessed that they were, they were holding on by a, a thin thread, but they were holding on because they trusted in the Lord. And I think that example of faith, especially during that time, helped me to understand, to truly understand the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, I understood it in one sense before, but seeing their faith preserved in such a difficult situation at such a heartbreaking time in their lives, that was one of the most encouraging things I've ever experienced. And I think they grew significantly in their faith as a result of it. We consider those blessed who endure. So I'll say as James, you likewise, brothers, be patient. Be patient as you endure trial, as you endure difficulty. Back to verse 11, another example. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Again, we read from Job 42 for our scripture reading this morning. And one piece, one thing that I rarely hear people comment on the life of Job, as you hear about the life of Job, is that there were some things that Job still had to learn about the Lord. The text says at the beginning of Job that Job was, Uh, a blameless man and upright. He lived and he sought to do the will of God. He wasn't constantly in sin. He continually sought to do what was pleasing in the sight of God. And yet there were some things that God, that Job didn't know about God, that there are some ways in which his relationship with God hadn't quite been touched yet. And he even confesses at the end in Job 42, verse 5, I had heard about you by the hearing of the ear, ear, but now my eye sees you. And what that says to me is that Job is confessing that, yes, I knew about you, and I understood in one sense, I understood your sovereignty, I understood your glory, but now, after I've gone through all of this, now I think I truly see you. And if you think about Job's life as a whole, that's something that he would not have known about God unless he had gone through the trial, unless he'd gone through the suffering. And one other thing that I think we have to understand, and the reason why James offers Job here as an illustration, is that Job's latter years were better than his former years, right? Job remained steadfast. He remained faithful. He continued setting his focus and his attention on God, even in the midst of trials, even when his wife said, just curse God and die, even when his friends who should have been faithful were foolish and were giving him wrong advice and essentially accusing him of sin when he wasn't in sin. Through all of that, Job endured. Through the physical pain, through the emotional pain and loss that he experienced, he endured. He continued setting his focus and attention on the Lord and the end of his life was better than the beginning. And I think that's part of the point for us. We consider those blessed who endure. James is saying, you also, you likewise be patient. You endure because the end is going to be better than the beginning. Doesn't matter how good the beginning was. The end, what God has promised for us is going to be better than the beginning. 
the reward is going to be better. I'll circle back to a point that I made earlier. The one who is called the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus himself, again, had to endure the cross, the shame of the cross, the physical suffering on the cross, the hostility of sinners against himself, the weight and burden of sin, the wrath of his father. He endured all of that for the joy set before him. And we ought to do likewise. Again, patience is the ability to remain at ease in the midst of turmoil in view of the reward of God. And Jesus perfectly exemplifies that. And this is what we are being called to. We are being called to endure with patience, to remain at ease, to remain calm, to continue trusting in the Lord in the midst of whatever trials we're going through. Because God has something so much better in store for us. At the end of all your labors, at the end of all your difficulty, there is going to be reward. There's going to be blessing. Just be patient and wait on the Lord. What trials are you enduring today? What oppression are you experiencing? What injustice? I wonder how might the Lord be working in your life to use these trials to bring about patience in you and through that patience to mature your faith. How might the Lord be using the hardship that you are encountering to encourage you to learn again to wait on him, to look not to relief from the world, not relief from the trial, but rather to look to relief through your faith in the Lord. To look to him, the one who is compassionate and merciful, to find joy and peace in the midst of your pain, looking forward to his promise reward. The immeasurable kindness of his grace toward us in Christ for all eternity. James's message, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And I say that to you again, be patient until the coming of the Lord. The Lord is coming. He will set right everything that is wrong in the world. The wicked he will judge, and he has a reward for you. And so we ought to look forward to that. May the Lord make that true of us. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the reminder in your word, the reminder of your reward. As we go through the trials that we encounter, as we go through difficulty, as we experience suffering in life from the hands of sinners, from the hands of those who reject you and those who hate us for serving you, for loving you, Father, help us to be patient. Help us to be patient knowing that your judgment is coming. As we, at times, experience suffering from the hand of one another, Father, help us to be patient. Help us to be patient with one another, knowing that you desire for us to not respond in anger, but to respond with patience toward one another, to respond with love towards one another. As we continue to go through our trials, as we continue to experience difficulty in this life, Father, help us to be patient. Help us to be patient as we look forward to the reward, the reward of a glorified body, the reward of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, the reward that you've promised us that Paul described as the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness. Father, help us to look forward to the reward. Help us to cling to the reward pray that knowing of your reward and of your coming that it would help us to live in a way that honors you today thank you for hearing our prayers this morning we commit all of this to you in the name of your son amen